because all these strategies, I can tell you, none of them work all the time. They will all go through periods of underperformance, some for a very, very long period of time and some dramatically, and some may never outperform again. I can't, I can't guarantee that. You've got to be able to stick with them because if not, you might as well just throw it. You might as well just buy the market because if you can't stick with it, especially when they're underperforming, you're not going to be there on the back end when these strategies revert. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Doogles, we have a special guest today. That we do. Very exciting. Excited. Uh, we have Justin Carvino from Validia Capital Management. Um, Justin, thanks for taking some time to chat with us today. Hey, fellas, how are you? You guys are both very excited to have me on, so I'm excited to be here. So thanks for having me. I love it. So you, uh, based on my research, have been with Validia 19 years now, partner, vice president at the firm. You mind uh, walking us through your adventures there and giving a little background on what Validia is? This company actually started in the late 1990s, and it was um, my first real job. I was a junior in college, and uh, I went to UConn. And at the time, my best friend and I basically applied for what was a stock market research analyst position with a very small company here in West Hartford, Connecticut. And at the time, the founder of Validia, his name is John Reese, and he's still one of my partners today. Um, John's background was he went to MIT and Harvard Business School. And at the time, what he was doing is two different sort of simultaneous research projects. One, we were gathering the stock market recommendations from various investment periodicals and sources. And so we were trying to summarize positive and negative recommendations. And we were trying to see if there was any predictability in following those recommendations. And then on the other side of the business was sort of a research engine, a computerized engine where you could put in a stocks ticker and you could see how various investment methodologies based on great investors like Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, how those stock strategies would actually score and rank those individual securities. So I was uh, a junior going to my senior year. Validia at that time ended up raising around, I think, five to $6 million in venture capital financing. So this was during the 99, 2000 sort of dot-com boom. And what was crazy about that is that was my first real job, but we went from like maybe eight company, eight, eight um, individuals, and John was funding this out of his own pocket. And we eventually grew the company to about 50 people. But then the venture capitalists sort of took the VC financing, what we had in the bank back. We had about a million bucks left. And that company started to dissolve. So my first real job involved building a company and then basically dismantling a company like in like a two and a half year period. And that was a very formative experience in a lot of ways for me because we weren't profitable. We were spending more than we were making. You know, we were a casualty of the, this growth and dot-com boom and bust. And so that experience, while a good one, sort of, sort of formulated how things actually played out in the future because in 2002, 2003, John Reese and my other partner, who I'm still partners with today, Jack Forehand, we, we relaunched the company. We relaunched the investment research business as a subscription-based business. We started building tools around the core technology that was already built um, when we were VC funded. 
one of the uh, things I should just, I think this is a good lesson for like entrepreneurs, especially for people that develop intellectual property is when John first founded Validia, he had patents on some of the underlying technology. So when Validia failed the first time as part of the deal with the VCs, because that IP had patents on it, he sort of worked into the you know organizational agreement, um, the funding agreement that when if Validia sort of dissolved, the IP went back to him. So that that core technology still existed. And then we were able to leverage that. So I'm kind of going way back here. This is like obviously early 2000s, but uh, we launched, relaunched the subscription business, um, which is still in uh, business today. In 2005, we launched an asset management firm um, and we manage money utilizing these strategies. And uh, sort of, I'll just stop in a second, but really what the core, what we're mostly known for is taking the fundamental investment strategies from legendary investors, but it's expanded over the years to other sources, books and academic papers. But what we've done is we've extracted the methodologies based on like Warren Buff, uh, the, the book Buffettology based on um, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, Joel Greenblatt's Magic Formula, John Neff, work by James O'Shaughnessy. So all of these individuals have long-term track record, records of success, either in the real world or back-tested. And then what we do is we extract those strategies and we build models off of those. And those sort of create the foundation of, I guess, the investing system that we've built here. It's such cool experience. I mean, you have like the entrepreneurial venture capital stuff, but you have the investing stuff. Uh, very, very, very cool. You know, Douglas and I have two, uh, we have two things you want to pass. We want you to pass on to Jack. One is Douglas wants to know if he plays tennis because we can't get over forehand as the last name. We just think it's great. I will. I'll ask him. I think he, yeah, I think he actually, I think he might've even played tennis to be honest with you. <laughs> It'd be sure. really in intimidating. I imagine he just, it has a killer forehand, right? Killer. Yeah. And then I, I want you to ask him to hang up some art in his office there. Cause when I watch you guys podcast, I wanted to mention the podcast too. Excess returns. There's just nothing behind him, man. Yeah, He's thank you very some... much. Yeah, I know Jack. Uh, that is like, you're basically, that's like Jack's entire house. He likes thinks he's like Steve Jobs over there. He's like, it's all white. There's like nothing on the walls. It's just like, <laughs> although I don't know, you know, honestly, uh, we'll have to let Jack, uh, he'll get a kick out of this. I don't think given Jack's um, artistic talents, I don't think his w wife wants him putting much stuff up on the walls. <laughs> and so the, the methodologies that you use are all quantitative. Correct. One, one question I have there, because we talk a lot, of, we both have quantitative models that we use for investing as well. And we talk about the advantage of that being that you can take the human emotion kind of out of it, right? It tells mm -hmm. you what to do. You do the thing. What I'm curious about and using that for managing other folks' money is the other natural part of what humans all have is that you kind of, you want to scratch that itch sometimes. It's like, I, I want to, uh, I look at Alibaba and I'm like, oh, it might not fit into the model, but like, but I'm going to bet on China. You know, I want to buy Alibaba, whatever it might be. How do you, do you approach that with your clients and how do you approach them with, with thinking through that piece or is they just handle that separately? Yeah, that's completely, I mean, we're definitely not doing that. So we're, there's no subjectivity or qualitative assessment that we're doing within the portfolios that we run. Um, so anytime we're managing the portfolios or building the portfolios, it's always done using a quantitative, systematic, highly disciplined approach everywhere from stock selection, all the way to portfolio rebalancing. So the day we rebalance the portfolios, the risk controls we have at the portfolio construction level, how we manage sort of taxes using a quantitative, it's all basically done through rules-based. You're right that a lot of clients, and 
you know, there are, we do have some examples where a client may come up, come to us with like a one-off request. And we're a small enough firm where we'll talk through that with the client. And we, I'm not going to say we don't make exceptions to that because we do. It's just that falls outside of like the models that we're running for them. You know, if somebody says, you know, I really, I don't even know what an example is, you know, I'm looking at this industry and can you help me kind of narrow down using your system? Like, 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 for example, I had a few clients where we did play sort of some of the reopening. We tried to play a reopening trade where we looked at the areas really the cyclical, you know, areas that were beat up the most and trying to use the Validia system to uncover the best securities. But, you know, that get, that's kind of a thematic timing-based thing too. So inevitably you're getting this, you know, the subjectivity is coming in. And then the, then the question you would want to naturally ask if you're doing like a reopening thing is, well, when does that reopening trade end? When do you phase out of that? And so there's those decisions that can complicate the process that, you know, people might not necessarily be thinking all the way through. I definitely love some of the screens you guys have with uh, Buffett or Graham or whoever else. I I found the website to be really valuable on that front. You know, when you talk about reopening trades, I almost want to jump ahead a question here and just get your thoughts on what you think is cheap right now, maybe what is hitting across multiple screens or what you've been researching personally that you're intrigued by. So, I mean, I don't know if I have, I I think within our system, it's like kind of interesting. So the value, and maybe I'm sure you guys have talked about this because this is kind of out there. This is like the known, you know, especially a lot of systematic value investors. I mean, value stocks in general. So the cheapest, let's say, quartile of stocks, they're still relatively cheap, especially versus sort of the you know, mega or large cap growth. So you have a very wide spread still even given, just given what's gone on the market. I mean, growth has come in a lot this year, but you still have very wide historical spreads between what I would consider, you know, small and mid cap value stocks, which is, it's a pretty plentiful place to sort of find opportunity because there's a lot of names, you know, there's a lot to scour there versus large cap growth, which still tends to be, you know, pretty expensive based on, you know, most metrics and variables. One of the things that's because we have this we have this feature on the Validia site. It's called the market valuation tool. And what you can do is you can look at segments of the market like value and growth stocks or all the different sectors, and you can see how they compare and stack up versus like trailing 12 months PE, current PE, the CAPE uh, ratio, price to sales, and I think price to cash flow, price to book might be in there too. And one of the things that's interesting is when you look at all of the segments of the market based on price to sales, everything looks expensive, even value, even value stocks look expensive historically. And we, we track this data going back to 06. So we're not talking about decades and decades worth of data, but you know, we're talking whatever 15 years worth of using their trailing 12 months or current year PE. And, you know, we use a median, so we're not using like an average, we're using a median to get the value. You know, value stocks actually look you know, just cheap historically. So they're in like anywhere from like the cheapest third percent to the cheapest 20% historically, given the data that we have. So I don't know, I think the setup here for value and, you know, I, we've been sort of saying this for a long time. So I'm probably gonna sound like a broken record. If you go back to other podcasts I've done, like we've been, but I think, you know, maybe it's different where valuations are and where interest rates are probably going and, and the inflation that we have. I mean, the ingredients I think are good for 
buying cheap stocks, especially as investors, as some of the you know froth comes out of other areas of the market and looks to find a home as, and as investors sort of wake up to maybe uh, you know, a potential regime change with the types of stocks that might be working better going forward. Yeah, completely agree. And I will send you uh, the bribe for saying value stocks are the way to invest later. Um, so excited about that. Nice. <laughs> Diggles, you ready to switch gears? I want Justin to play the rational or rational game. Been to it. All right. So the way this game works, it's sweeping the nation, but only on the Skippy and Dougal show. I'm going to give you like 10 rapid fire questions and you're going to give me a one word response, uh, whether that behavior is rational or irrational. Okay. Ready? I wish I had a buzzer, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this has a, a Boston theme since I know you're close okay. and, and you spent time there. So first, you're also a runner and a really talented runner at that. Tell me if you think the current Boston Marathon qualifying times are rational or irrational. Okay, so I would say rational. Uh, how about Elon Musk buying Twitter? Rational. How about from the perspective of Twitter's board? Is it rational? Irrational. Okay. Kathy Wood's investing philosophy. Put me on the spot here with this one. Initially, you know, here, real quick, we launched our ETF, which doesn't exist anymore, the same week that ARC, that Kathy Wood launched ARC. So here we were really a small cap fundamental value ETF. It was called the Validia Market Legends ETF. It was December, yeah. 2014. So we launched the ETF. At that point, I would say it was irrational because I was like, there's no way that those stocks are gonna beat our stocks. But you know what? Even though she's down tremendously this year and maybe in the past few months, I mean, I gotta give her credit. And you know, she had a great track record say about what you know about it what you will but so i would say i've changed my tune and i would say rational but you got to be a believer in her type of investing philosophy in those stocks i love it netflix down 60 percent rational robin hood trading at a eight billion dollar market cap rational bostonians calling boston bean town irrational <laughs> <laughs> last one we're ending uh, hopefully to get a laugh i saw this article today we can break it down in detail if you need to uh with the fertilizer shortage as part of the ukraine russia war uh people are suggesting using human urine as fertilizer rational or irrational uh i would say irrational but go for it if you want to just not on my yard <laughs> <laughs> not not in my backyard he came not in my backyard <laughs> yeah. although what is fertilizer i mean it's crazy some of the i haven't looked but i mean some of the prices on these things is like absolutely ridiculous and i do get you know i know some people are like anti and i understand why i live in a community where there is a water body and you know you got to be careful with the runoff and stuff like that but i'm kind of afraid to get my landscaping uh bill when they treat because it's going to be like triple the price yeah, no, it's it's absolutely crazy. And this is a real live article. I'll send it to you after the show. But there are people throughout Europe suggesting that there's the right byproducts, I guess you'd say, okay. in human urine and that we can uh, save some people some a few bucks on their fertilizer bills. Dougals, jump in. All right. So I get a lot of flack on the show for the amount that I bring up Kathy Wood. But I didn't bring up Kathy Wood. <laughs> right now so and we don't have to discuss uh, her in particular if you if you don't want to uh, talk there but i will I, the uh, the thing that sticks with me is that 
I have a lot of respect for commitment, right, to and belief in a philosophy. And I think that she has that with spades. But the thing that that really gets to me is how adamant it's it still seems like she can be with regard to like how right like what she's doing is because I'll even if you take like a Buffett or something like that he'll pretty often be like well mess that one up <laughs> right or right. like like that wasn't right and that's the thing that as a if I was someone that was uh, I'll I'll turn this into not a Kathy Wood thing if you like but the the piece that that uh, I think about if I was an investor with her is I would want to see some level of vulnerability that exists mm-hmm. with regard to the 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 desire to look at other philosophies, think about things differently. And I'm just mm-hmm. not seeing that. How do what are your thoughts on that? You don't have to do it on Kathy Wood specifically, but yeah, just no, on, I, on I mean, I think case. that's a very I think that's a very fair point. I would I, I think that, you know, she is sort of put a stake in the ground on this in this dis- disruptive, you know, high growth, you know, area of the market. So for her to like, that's what the whole thing's been built around and the investors that have, you know, invested with her. And so it's like, if she were to um, show some vulnerability to that, Hey, like, you know, Teladoc, maybe it shouldn't have been because of whatever that stock's just gotten demolished. You know, it shouldn't have been like, I was wrong. Like this company got way ahead of itself. Um, it's a, still a good business, but it's just, the valuation was crazy. It shouldn't, you know, I, I, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that. I haven't followed you know, you're, I think you're, you know, you're right in the sense that I, I, don't, I don't watch every single one of her interviews, but it's almost like she digs her heels in more and more. And, you know, maybe you could, you could sort of um, thread the, you know, thread the needle better, like to your point, like, listen, I like this company. It was, you know, a good, it's in a good market, it's in a growing market, but you know, it wasn't, it should have been trading at 200 times earnings. I don't know. I, I mean, I think your, your points very well taken. I think some of the best investors out there especially investors that we've studied, you know, if you think about people like Joe Greenblatt, who I've watched a lot of interviews of Buffett, of course, Peter Lynch, to a large extent, I mean, there was humility. And I think they kind of all know there's a, there's like a point in time or a point in the market cycle or a point in their career, probably, when things are going really good and not taking too much credit for that, knowing that right place, right time, right investment strategy but then at some point things change and you either have to change with it or maybe the market's going to leave you behind or you have to admit that, you know, maybe you weren't completely right. Um, so I think that's a good quality to have as a person and as an, some, as an investor, especially, you know, for someone that you're putting maybe your money with. So I'm basically just agreeing with you, I think. You, hear, you heard it here first, Skippy. Someone agreed with me. <laughs> no, there's there's credit to be due there. I, the thing that kills me is I'll probably get the quote wrong when she's saying that there's guaranteed forty percent yearly returns coming for her portfolio or whatever she said. It yeah. just seems a little out there. But props, like you said, I I actually loved your story. Like you guys launched an ETF with I think probably a more solid fundamentals, but she had better performance through you know 2021 or whatever so she clearly did something right at some point the scoreboard actually says that she did a great job um at least through the end of last year right yeah and i don't you know to your point the best investors aren't sitting there saying you know from this point forward the next five years we're going to compound at 40 percent per year i mean no one's really done that ever except for maybe kathy wood in the first four years to replicate it and even even to think that you know 
like a statement like that. It is kind of ridiculous. And I did see that come across the, you know, whatever on CNBC when she was talking about her portfolio, you know, more, uh, recently. What's crazy about ARK, you guys have probably seen this, but despite its crazy underperformance, like massive underperformance, it's still having inflows. Yeah, it really, that, I read that last week and that's shocking to me because that's typically not how it works. Um, I want to switch, switch gears slightly. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you wrote an awesome article and I know you've done presentations on this, kind of breaking down the 60-40 portfolio historical performance and some of the headwinds that it faces today. We don't have to go line by line. I'll definitely put this out on the show's Twitter. But um thought this was a really awesome piece of work and it's something that we've been talking about for going on two years now. So mm -hmm. wanted to pick your brain on that and give you a chance to uh, break down some of the headwinds and how you're thinking about that challenge. Well, it's great that you guys have been talking about it for you know a couple of years here because I do think this is like this isn't something that you know I just sort of put out there like in the last two weeks, which it seems like you know that's just given the performance of the 60-40 in the first quarter, I think it was maybe the worst quarter it's had uh, in a long, long time because bonds are you know losing money and so stocks are obviously down for the quarter and probably similar to you guys, I don't know what the catalyst was for you guys to start thinking about this or talking about it. But for me, it kind of goes back to, you know, mid 2020, late 2020, when you had obviously all this fiscal stimulus come into the market. So money being put directly in people's hands and people's bank accounts um, or in companies' bank accounts for that matter. And, you know, I started listening to Jeremy Siegel, who is a professor at Wharton Business School and Wisdom Tree was having these sessions where Siegel would um, come on and, and they still do this, but he, he would talk about things. And in the last, probably started maybe a little over a year ago, he was really warning that the growth in the money supply and the overall Fed, Fed's balance sheet, when you look at it, you know, it was basically $1 trillion before the uh, around a trillion before the great financial crisis. It then might've gone up to a couple of trillion after the financial crisis. Then there was quantitative easing. And then, you know, after the COVID thing, you know, the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet went up to like whatever it is, eight or 9 trillion. And so, you know, he was starting to talk about this massive growth in money supply in M1 that eventually was going to start coming back into the market and starting to drive prices higher. And that seemed to make like a lot of sense to me. I'm like, you know, we know people like to spend, people have more discretionary spending money now. And, you know, eventually that's going to come back in. And so, and then couple that. So this is, this is like even a year ago, and I'm sure you guys were looking at and talking about the same things. You know, we started to see very expensive market valuations because stocks were doing so well. And so that was sort of bringing those two things together, you know, all this money, potential higher inflation, and you had much lower expected returns. I started thinking about and sort of formulating this challenges to the 60, 40, stock and bond portfolio. Um, so to your point, you know, it starts with how well is the 60-40 done? And it was, it was pretty amazing. Like when you go back to 1987, a standard 60-40 portfolio would have returned about 9.2% annually with, you know, much lower levels of overall volatility than the overall U.S. stock market because you have 40% of it in bonds. Now that, you know, has been basically a 40-year bond bull market. Um, and equities obviously have done very well over that period too. But if you just think about that for a second, like, you know, not 9%, you know, that's almost like equity like returns, but you're getting, you know, significantly less risk. So it's been a great, great three decades to be invested 
in the 60-40. And then if you look at, as I mentioned, you know, valuations, I think in my article, Schwab has a really good chart, which shows it takes like the market and looks at all these different valuation metrics. So everything from, and this is using the S&P 500. So it's, you know, using the broad general market cap weighted index, but everything from, you know, 4P, trailing P, price to book, price to cash flow on the market, the Schiller Cape ratio, uh, Tobin's Q, market cap to GDP. So there's all different ways, um, ratios and these other methods for trying to get at the market's valuation. And the vast majority of these things were way, way over into the like 99th percentile in terms of overvaluation. And then, you know, you looked at up until, you know, bond yields have come up. I don't know where we are on the 10 year, maybe something like 3%, but I mean, they've come way off their low, but yeah. you know, even like six months ago, where were they? Like, you know, I don't know, two point something. When you put that together, you know, if you have high valuations and low bond yields, you know, you can expect a much lower future return. And, and, and by the way, Vanguard puts out a really good, I think on a monthly basis, they put out like a expected seven to 10 year uh, return sort of estimates, probabilities, basically return projections. And in the US equity returns, they were, they were estimating anywhere from a 2.3 to 4.3% long-term return. And then on, on treasuries, they were estimating anywhere from a 1.2 to 2.2% return in terms of a range over the next seven to 10 years. So basically on the, on the high side for the next 10 years, a 60, 40 would have given you three, you know, estimated returns, you're looking at a 3.46% return on the high side. And on the low end, it's about a 1.8% return. So just sort of stopping there, you know, that's kind of what you're looking at. Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I wanted to jump in. I mean, it's not just Vanguard, uh, research affiliates or GMO or uh, all sorts of places do future return projections based on current valuations. And the foundation you just clearly articulated means it, this isn't going to be pretty over the next decade for your typical 60-40 returns in any way, shape, or form. It's It'd be very unlikely to get something in the 9% range <laughs> that we saw for the right. past 40 years, right? No, that's, that's right. And that's what is, I think that's concerning. It's, it's you know, invest, a lot of investors are positioned in that pretty standard stock bond allocation. You know, another thing I've been thinking about too, and I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but you know, and I'm not, I, I think financial advisors, the vast majority of them serve a very important purpose. They keep investors out of trouble. They control behavior. They are, you know, advising clients um, in a lot of different ways outside their investments, helping them focus on their goals and, you know, meeting those goals and savings and everything like that. And we're not necessarily, you know, Validia Capital is more of a investment management company. We do some soft financial planning, but not like to the extent that, you know, but I, I kind of, I think like the 1%, one and a half percent financial planning fee has kind of been hidden or not hidden, but like acceptable in a period when you're getting eight to 9% on your money. If you're paying 1%, you know, for planning and the investment is part of the investment management is part of that, but, you know, throw in, you know, now a two and a half to three and a half percent return and you're paying your financial advisor 1%. You know, it's uh, now your now your net return is more like you know one and a half percent. So, I don't know. I think there's some sort of challenges on that side of it too. But maybe that's another discussion. Yeah, we we've actually we've talked about that a good amount. Partially from just the take everything else away. Is that a fair amount to price? Is like like is that the right model? We've like we've discussed that. But then also very recently we were discussing how um, when everything's going well, 
right? Like as you said, these types of things can feel hidden. Even like your trading costs can feel hidden. All of them, if you put it all together, can feel hidden. But then all of a sudden, you hit these, you hit these moments. And I think, what do we say? We're like, then you start checking the spreadsheets, right? It's like, mm-hmm. like you'll pay for, you'll pay for your HBO Max and your Netflix and your Showtime and all that other stuff. And then like March 2020 happens and you're sitting down, you know, with your with your partner and you're like, let's check to make sure we've got all our subscription stuff, our ducks in a row. And these are the times, to your point, once it starts feeling thinner, where people start to look more and more at the detail. And is this right? Is my debt actually okay? I felt like I was fine with all the levels of debt, but now is that fine, right? All this stuff starts to come to roost. Well, yeah. And you add on like the inflation too. I think more and more people are... Every time, you know, you go into the grocery store, you go to the gas pump, you're paying this, you're paying that. It's like you're cringing because, you know, things are just a lot more expensive. So I, I think to your point, people are going to be, as that continues, it's like more sensitivity around what you're spending money on, more scrutiny of that. And, you know, that has, I think, a lot of different um, implications. The one thing with the investment space, and, you know, I'm not, listen, we're in the business and this is how it's set up. And, you know, it's like the and maybe it's not the only only industry that like bills this way, but I mean, it's not like our clients are writing us a check, meaning it's coming out of their account. You know, when we're when we're billing, it's sort of coming out of somewhere else. So it's not like I mean, imagine if I was managing your money and then on a quarterly basis, I was you know asking you to write me a check. You know, that's not how it works. And so, in some ways, the investment management industry has it good because all these fees are like embedded in funds. Or coming out of clients' accounts directly. And, you know, clients don't see it unless they really dig in and look. And so those fees are like hidden a lot of times. And I think they've tried to make it, of course, our fees are transparent. Clients can go and find what they pay us. It's all outlined in the investment management agreement and everything like that. But I mean, how many clients, even in mutual funds, you may look at like the expense ratio or an ETF expense ratio, you look at it, okay, 50 basis points or whatever, 75 basis points. But you know, you kind of look at it almost like it's a one-time, but no, that's an annual thing. So that's coming out annually. So I don't know. It's it's one of those things that I think uh, maybe that's what makes the investment and management industry so attractive for some people. It's a very profitable business to be in when you can get it right. Can I switch gears a little bit? Or do you, do you have something yeah, to skip you? No. So your organization, Validia, you look at a variety of screens for a number of different investors, and you've talked about some of them before. And so you have this perspective on historical returns and historical strategies from a lot of different investors. Uh, who's your favorite? Let me, let me just let me kind of go, go right to it. Brass tags. Yeah, my favorite, I would probably say of the groups of the of the of the the models we run. So let me just let me read them to you, so I, I can just because I, I think it's it's it would I'd be do it like I'd be doing it injustice if I didn't like just kind of quickly outline if it, if it's okay. Um, yeah. yeah, real quick. So we run strategies based on Med Faber shareholder yield, um, a researcher named Deshaun Huang, James O'Shaughnessy, Partha Mohan Ram, who's an academic, The Motley Fool. Benjamin Graham, Martin Zwag, who was a great growth investor, uh, a model based on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's book, Peter Lynch, Ken Fisher, John Neff, Tob- 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 Tobias Carlyle, who wrote The Acquires Multiple, Wes Gray from Alpha Architect, based on his book, Quantitative Momentum, Warren Buffett, based on the book, Buffettology, Pim Van Vliet, which is a multi-factor model, Joseph Piotrowski, who's an academic, Joel Greenblatt and David Dremen. I think my favorite out of all those is probably Jane... James O'Shaughnessy, because I think his book, What Works on Wall Street, is just 
it's a phenomenal book about testing all these different factors as far back as he could, and then bringing them all together sort of in one sort of multi-factor strategy. And I like that O'Shaughnessy, he had sort of like a, uh, something he called the cornerstone growth strategy and the cornerstone value strategy. And so he was combining sort of a, a small cap fundamental model with momentum along with a large cap value model and sort of those two things. And I think he tested these back in, at least in the initial book back to um, 1956, I believe. So there, it's just like, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the book is like this thick. I actually have it. Oh, I got it right here. Hold on a second. This is, this is the book. As you can see, it's very thick. <laughs> it's interesting to have a title of what works on wall street and it's like everything, right? You see that this book <laughs> <Yeah. is. laughs> it's like, all of these do. <laughs> yeah, well, right. and of that list you walked through, Justin, James is my favorite Twitter personality. So oh, nice. I, I'm on your side just on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd probably stick with Graham, but I, I like the James pick. That's a good pick. I like it. I like it. I mean, and by the way, all these guys, Lynch, Buffett, well, of course, Graham, O'Shaughnessy, you know, controlling whether they're, they, they built their reputations and their track records by being a great stock picker, like Buffett or a great capital allocator, or like Graham, you know, just buying, you know, the cheapest stuff out there, like behavior, temperament, being able to control your emotions. That's really kind of, because all these strategies, I can tell you, none of them work all the time. They will all go through periods of underperformance, some for a very, very long period of time and some dramatically, and some may never outperform again. I can't, I can't guarantee that, but I just know that if you're going to get the most out of one of these, you've got to be able to stick with them. Cause if not, you might as well just throw it. You might as well just buy the market. Cause if you can't stick with it, especially when they're underperforming, you're not going to be there on the back end when these strategies revert. I've seen it time and time again with our models with investors and the way they react when our strategy is underperforming. And, and by the way, and the, all these guys that I'm talking about that we've sort of built these strategies on, I mean, they, I'm really just, you know, articulating what they would say too. Our go-to resource for investor psychology is uh, probably William Green, who was on the show last year. He's going to be on the show in a month too. We like William so much because he just, he just talks to all these guys. He knows the ins and outs and the psychology piece is so critically important. I think you articulated that really well. I'm hoping we can swiss, uh, switch gears again. So Justin, we often also give Dougals a hard time about Bitcoin. And Justin, I think you have a really fun Bitcoin story that would be fun to walk through on the show. So my story with Bitcoin is, it was probably like three years ago at this point. It was a Monday morning. I was in my office where I am right now. And my wife gets a phone call from a former... She had left her job at, at a hospital as a pharmacist and was working in another hospital, but she got a phone call from a former colleague at, from her old hospital. And this guy was, he's like, he's um, from Cambodia originally, salt of the earth guy, hard worker, um, has enough money because he works like two jobs. He's like always working. And my wife has never gotten a call from him before, never gotten a call from him since. And so he asked her if she knows anyone that owns any Bitcoin. And he had kind of known because she had sort of talked about it, like when she was there that, you know, I was investing in this thing called Bitcoin and whatever. So he had, I think, caught wind that I had, you know, owned some Bitcoin. And so basically um, what he asked my wife and what they needed help with was he had an uncle that needed a life-saving surgery in Cambodia, basically like 
the next the following day and they couldn't get money to the hospital fast enough um, to do the procedure. So I ended up sending Bitcoin over and he had the procedure and they basically, did, you know, it, it was a success and he made a full recovery and came out of it. And um, the gentleman that made the call, my wife's former colleague came back to, you know, a, a few days later and, and gave me um, and reimbursed me for the money I, I sent over. And then I basically put it, you know, back into to Bitcoin. Um, so it was, you know, that's my story with Bitcoin. It, it sort of is like pretty much, you know, like a good use case example of it. I'm not defending like the merits or the valuation or anything like that. But I have like a legitimate experience where like I help somebody that I don't really, I help I helped a friend here that uh, that had a relative that needed help. And like I said, I'm glad I couldn't do it for like a nicer guy. Um, but it's just an interesting, you know, you, people talk about these use cases and, you know, you hear about things in Russia or Venezuela or money flowing in and out of these countries where there may be, we don't have, they don't have like what we have in terms of protections with our financial system, but this was an example that I did. And yeah, so that's my, that's my Bitcoin story. <laughs> it's quite a remarkable story. I it's really amazing. appreciate you sharing it with it. And you know, the things we debate on the show are, yeah, is the valuation fair? Is it investing? Is it speculation? But we do come back to the women in, in Afghanistan that have been paid in Bitcoin for a long time and now maybe have a chance since their currency uh, fell apart or Venezuela or other parts of the world where you can't trust the government's currency. So it's a really fun story. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, like what kind of opened my eyes to do it? Like when I started, you know, like on Christmas, on Christmases, I give like, you know, for my buddies, like this goes back. I was like, I would just joke around and I would like send like, you know, I don't know, a little bit of a Bitcoin or a little bit of ether. Like I actually jacked my partner, you know, one Christmas I sent him some Ethereum and regardless of what, he ended up like it ended up going up and he sold it. And so he, he, he bailed out. He like sold my gift, <laughs> but, but the crazy thing is, and you guys, I think will appreciate this when you can transfer something like in real time. Yep. And you know, that can then be turned to dollars. Now I, I understand there's also a downside to that, like the anonymity of it and you know, you can't really track it. And so like the, 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 the legal stuff that you can do, but I mean, I can't a hundred dollars from my bank account, or if, if I could, it'd be costly. It might not be real time and there might be a delay. And I don't even know if you can do that from bank to bank. So, you know, when I first got involved and saw like this, like seamless, like transaction of the Bitcoin across the network, it just kind of opened my eyes. That's separate from this thing that I did for my wife's friend, but it just was kind of like, holy smokes, like this is like kind of unbelievable that this crypto asset can be transferred like that. There, it's so funny. You and I, um, with the crypto exploration, have very similar views. There, there's just parts of it that are fascinating to me. And the uh, remittances budget, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but like between the U.S. and Central America and worldwide, I think they say it's at least six hundred billion dollars worth of wow. remittances getting transferred. And if you think about eliminating or reducing the fees with some blockchain-based solution, it's it's a fascinating use case. We're mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. same page there. Dugas, do you want to throw anything else in uh, before we get to our last question here for Justin? Uh, let, let's hop into last the last question. Awesome. So Justin, this is the question we ask all our guests. What is your dream retirement and how is that different from your life today? You know, I don't think about retirement that much. If I 
think about my retirement. I, I, I would be nice to be close to the water, maybe somewhere like that, have a, maybe one or two golden retrievers. I already have a golden retriever, but be able to like walk the dog on the beach. I think fitness, as you know, is an important, it's important to me now. I hope it continues to be important in the future. Although as we get older, um, you know, some of us might have like braces on our hands because things get, things get injured, but, uh, you know, I mean, I'll probably have a knee brace and a couple braces on, on myself, when I'm like 65 given what I'm doing to my body. But I, I hope that fitness can still be sort of part of what I'm doing. Um, you know, I think that if I, I'd like to be involved in my, I have two young girls. And so I hope my retirement can be one where I am involved with like them and their families and whether or not they have kids, um, which hopefully they do, you know, I can be like a good grandparent and be the type of grandparent that is like involved, whether or not they live close to me or not. Like, you know, I want my kids to want to come and see me and I want my grandkids to, you know, enjoy spending time with me. And I want to like actually invest in them. I want to be the type of grandparent that you know, can be like engaged and involved for as long as my grandkids want me to, because it's not always going to be that way. But if my wife and I can, you know, be there for our children and our grandchildren, to me, um, I think that would ultimately be probably the best retirement that I could ask for. Beautiful. Very human. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's great. Justin, that's kind of a trick question. We want you to say, my life's perfect. I don't need to retire. I already have a golden retriever and get to spend time with my kids. Sounds like you have a lot of those things already, which is so cool. Yeah, well, I do, but you know, it's not always, nothing's perfect, but I do have that. And yeah, so, <laughs> but I mean, Jack and I are like really lucky that we have like a job that we actually like love to do. It hasn't always been easy, but like having an investment research company, managing money, doing content, doing webinars. I mean, this is like great. That's like, I don't, I don't, I, <laughs> Like, I don't really want to do anything else. Now, maybe that's also being too comfortable too. So that might be part of what you got to understand the risk of. You don't want to, you know, get too. So anyways, but yeah. I, I mean, agree. some of that's about counting your blessings though. I think we've been blessed to talk to people in professions where a lot of times they go, yeah, it's, uh, I'm pretty close. You know, it's not perfect, but I'm pretty close. And I just try, I think we try to count those blessings and go, how cool is that? Like. If you're in a place that you're pretty happy right now, and like I said, you already have one golden retriever, like that's awesome. <laughs> well, thank well, Justin, you. Justin, this was fun. Have a great week. All right, Jess. Okay, you guys have a good one. Take care.